Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, you have promised that when your word goes forth, it does not return to you empty. Give us now your spirit that we might put into ourselves what you have said in the name of your son. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you for a moment about the gospel according to Huldah. Huldah, this woman who appears as a prophet in 2 Kings. I've called it a gospel. It's the responsibility of pastors and ministers to preach the gospel. I think you know maybe that the word gospel means good news. So I'm supposed to bring to you good news. Except in this case, I think the good news starts with some bad news. So here are the bad news. And it may not be surprising to you, but the bad news is something like this. The people of God can be very, very, very disappointing. Things can get really bad in the community where God is allegedly at work, or really at work. The church can be deeply disappointing to you. I'm sorry if this is the first time you've ever encountered this thought. It might be. It may be something that has almost kept you from coming. But it's true. So let's look at 2 Kings for a minute. We are in the middle of a really interesting story about King Josiah, who becomes king when he is eight years old. Raise your hand if you are eight years old in here. There's a couple eight-year-olds. Okay. Raise your hand if you're not quite eight. Okay. Yeah, your time might be coming. I mean, it's not a good situation if you have an eight-year-old king in the land. There's not a lot that he can do. Josiah becomes king when he's eight years old. He grows up. He appears to be a decent guy. The temple is in some disrepair. He sends money into the temple to have it repaired. They're doing some repairs, and the story goes, they discover a book. And they, come, they, they dust it off, and they read it. And they say, I think we should show this to the king. So they bring it to Josiah. And he reads, they read it actually to him. And the book is some sort of, we don't exactly know what it is. It may be a portion of Deuteronomy. It's, called, it's a book of the law. And as it is read to Josiah, he begins to weep. And he tears his clothes. Why would he do this? Because the law speaks about who God is and about what Israel is called to be and do in light of who God is. If you read some portion of Deuteronomy, he may have read something about how I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, here is how you're to walk before me. He may have read how God intended to bring Israel into the land, in fact, which Josiah was king in, and to bless Israel. It was God's desire to have a people that he blessed with his goodness in a good land. But about how there were warnings that if, God, if God's people did not heed what he said, that he would cast them out of the land, that he would bring curses upon them, that he would bring armies against them and drive them out of the land. And ironically, Josiah has already seen this happen once, in the northern kingdom, because if you know your story of biblical history, which you're forgiven if you don't, um, 
There's this monarchy in Israel, David, Saul, David, Solomon, and then the kingdom breaks apart. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom has been carried away by the Assyrians. And Josiah is this young man. He's about 26 when this scene happens here. And he's in the southern kingdom. And this is what he reads. How God has judgment against the nation. And so he says, oh my goodness, what are we to do? To pause for a second, you don't get in the chapter that we read, that Dory read for us, how bad things were. You don't, if you read, though, chapter 23, and this is your assignment for this week, go read chapter 23 of 2 Kings. Listen to what's there. There are all sorts of idols, all sorts of other gods in the land of Judah, in the land of Israel. Gods of the Ammonites, gods of the, all of the different ites that are there. They've all got their different gods. And it's not just that there's different gods and gods like, I'm a little upset that you're not just paying attention to me. These are gods who have, who, whose worship has involved setting up booths for male prostitutes in the temple. Places for child sacrifice in the land. Guys, things are bad with the people of God. Church is disappointing. The Old Testament church the Old Testament people of God. It's a bad situation. Imagine for a second. I mean, this is, this is like the attempt, with God's help, to put a theocracy in the land. And this is how bad it gets. So Josiah does what seems like an appropriate response. He says, we have to talk to God and find out what it is we're going to do. Does anybody know God? And they say there is one woman. She's married to, like, the coat hanger. And there's this image of biblical womanhood. This woman who is able to speak for God to God's people. It seems that she already knows something of what is written in the book of the law. And she brings bad news to Josiah and to Judah. Listen to what she says. Thus says the Lord God of Israel... Tell the man who sent you to me, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants and all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read because they have forsaken me that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Have a good day, Josiah. Here's good news for you. All the words of this law that you have not done. This is language from the book of Deuteronomy. This is what God has given Israel. It's not a far commandment that's far away. It's clear. Here's what you're to do. And they've thrown all the words away. I hope you feel a measure of solidarity with Hulda's judgment and with God's judgment against a, a community, a people that would sacrifice their children to demons that would pervert the goodness that God has given them. But amazingly, I think, Hulda is not a cynic. It is totally appropriate. If you're like, a, I'm not a religious person because this is the kind of thing that religious people do, I absolutely get it. Uh, but notice how Hulda does not give up. She, that is, she resists a totalizing account 
of what it might be like to be part of the God of Israel. There is a measure of good news. Verse 18, but to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you. I'll gather you to your fathers in peace. I will be good to you, Josiah, because I see what is happening in your heart. And that even though you are part of this wicked people, and I'm not going to mention it, but it was for 16 years that you let all this stuff continue to happen. Nevertheless, because you've repented and turned to me, I am eager to be gracious to you. God was not required to do such a thing. But it is his heart to want to. In the midst of rampant wickedness, God says, I want to be kind to you. I see the desire to resist what is pretty tough to resist. And I'm interested in honoring that. I'm reminded as a parent that forbearance is the token of love. There are plenty of situations when it is just and right, maybe, to mete out punishment. But where kindness and love require not to. And think about what this means. You you have to read all of chapter 23 and what follows to read the rest of Josiah's life. Josiah goes, and there's widespread reform. He gets rid of all of these practices. Uh, He has to uh, put to death a number of people in the process. But he gets rid of all these practices. And think for a moment of who flourishes in an Israel in which maybe God, the true God, is known for a minute before the destruction that is decreed does come. There is goodness, real goodness, that happens when God looks down and says, in spite of the wickedness that's all everywhere in my people, I see a few. There's Huldah. There's Josiah. They want what is right. And I'm going to bless that and hold off and pour out a measure of goodness and blessing in the midst of this broken system. It is such a strange thing that this is how Israel's scriptures tell the story of Israel. Why in the world, if you're an ancient people with a story that tells where you came from, would that story be a story of how you messed everything up over and over again? There is very little in Israel's story that is a story of how heroic the people are. There are are moments where somebody is heroic. Josiah, Huldah, there are others you can think of. But on the whole, it is a story of travesty and failure and of God's patience and kindness, God's judgment and the hope that is sort of sown in the midst of that judgment. It's not going to always be this way. I will send you into exile and I will bring you back. I don't know how in the world this could be the story of Israel if it wasn't the true account. In Jesus' teaching, in Matthew's Gospel, when he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He's making reference to stories like this. In the Hebrew Bible, there's three parts of divisions. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And the prophets 
in this way of speaking refers not simply to the books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but it refers to kings and the, the historical prophets. He came to fulfill just this kind of story and situation. And you may remember from your, what you may or may not know from the wider teachings of Jesus that he enters into judgment with his people. He prophesies Jerusalem's destruction, which happens in the year 70. And he calls the contrite within Israel to faith and repentance. He promises that the meek will inherit the earth. Judgment and deliverance. Recognition that the one who is small and unseen is still loved by God and not forgotten. These are part of Jesus' message. But it's also part of Jesus' own story. This overwhelming fulfillment that happens, Jesus says, I came to do this. Not I came to talk about it and give you some more information and remind you that it's important. I came that the law and the prophets might be fulfilled, that judgment and deliverance might come about, happens in his own story. He is carried away in judgment on the cross. He's vindicated in the empty tomb. He is brought back from exile. And in him, brothers and sisters, This is the mystery that Paul is preaching about. This is the mystery. In him, you and I have entered into this same duality of judgment and redemption. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What has happened to Jesus is what mystically and mysteriously, but this is what the Bible teaches, has happened also to you who are in Christ. But I love the fact that Jesus and the rest of the New Testament are not sanguine about the possibility of our own moral failure as the church. You heard these couple phrases in the gospel reading, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, what will happen to it? It'll be thrown out, trampled. It's a possibility of judgment. And he's speaking to you. It's the first Greek word there. You, in English too, are the salt of the earth. You're his disciples, but be warned. There is the possibility of still judgment. You have to think for a minute, or maybe don't worry too much about this question, like can salt really lose its saltiness? Imagine you're in the ancient world and you got salt mixed with a lot of other stuff. You know, your pure table salt, of course, never loses its saltiness. Those who would undo God's commandments, Jesus says, and teach others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Addressing down to those who fail to live up to God's call. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter. These are warnings. But they're also statements about a new identity. He doesn't tell us to go be the salt of the earth. 
He says, my disciples, you are the salt of the earth. If you're not sure who you are, here's what Jesus says to you. You are the light of the world. This reformulation of identity in Christ is so, goes all the way down so much that Paul speaks in this passage that was read of a kind of duality, the natural person, the spiritual person. Some things cannot even be perceived, he says, at least in principle, because such a change has happened. You are a different and a prophetic people. And the beauty of this is that there's no distinction here. This you are the, who are the salt of the earth, there is, it is equalizing. Are you small? Are you a child? Are you in a position of little influence? Are you a poor person from a small town with uncertain prospects? So is the man who spoke these words. Are you caught up in the evils of the world around you, needing, like Josiah, to rend your garments and seek the Lord? He saw Josiah. He sees you, and he calls you and me. Brothers and sisters, this is who you are, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And he says, you are mine. In the name of the Father and the Son.